it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, March 3rd, 2023. Happy Friday. Welcome into the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson, political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor host of this fine program every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. We are so glad that you are here with us. If you can't listen to the whole show as we air, understandable, although not advisable, obviously, but there's a podcast for that as well, your backup plan, number one plan for some listeners as well. GuyBensonShow.com is our online home. Many ways to listen live there, by the way, including through our Great affiliates all across the country, our partners at odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com, but also that podcast as well. Another option for the podcast, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. You can follow me as well, at Guy P. Benson, both of those two places. We are coming to you live from South Florida today. A lot of travel. I'll address some of the travel at the end of the show in our home stretch. But a great lineup for you here, starting later this hour with U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee. I was hanging out with her a little bit last night and Senator Mike Lee as well. I'm here for an event. So we will talk to Senator Blackburn about actually, among other things, something very interesting that she told me last night, something that she learned recently on her travels abroad. Later on in the program, heading into the next hour, our middle hour, Trey Gowdy, our Fox News colleague, will be here. Of course, he was for a long time a prosecutor, and not just a criminal prosecutor, a criminal prosecutor based in South Carolina. So he will have some thoughts, I am sure, on the Alec Murdaugh trial and the guilty verdict that came down yesterday and then the life imprisonment sentence That was handed out today by the judge in that case. Is this justice? Did everyone get it right? We will ask Trey Gowdy about all of that in our next hour. Also in our middle hour, looking forward to this. The calendar has flipped to March. The weather, at least down here in Florida, is great. Major League Baseball is back, although it's spring training, preseason. But we're getting closer and closer to what's going to be a transformative new regular season of baseball with some big changes in the rules that are causing controversy. And we'll just check in on all of that, plus a preview of the season with Jeff Passan of ESPN, their top MLB insider. We always look forward to having Jeff here from time to time, and I am very excited to have that conversation. And then it is a Friday, and so Fridays with Cat coming your way in the 5 p.m. hour Eastern time kicking off the last hour of the program. With that, let's delve into this issue. We've been talking about crime quite a lot on this show, not just before the election, but still after the election, because it keeps getting worse in a lot of places. And we've focused, understandably, on one of the epicenters of -of out-of-control crime and ridiculous, harmful, destructive progressive policies in Washington, D.C., the capital city of our nation, where our show is based 
and we have been talking a lot about how the D.C. City Council, lunatics, have been doing a lot of lunatic things. Perhaps the most lunatic thing, and it's hard to pick one, right? The foreigners, illegal immigrants, foreign spies being allowed to vote, that's right up there. But the reduction of criminal penalties for violent crimes, including a specific violent crime that has tripled in recent years, carjacking, that is probably at the very top of the list. And so we mentioned that there was a federal component to this with House Republicans moving to basically, because they have the authority to do this, to override what the D.C. city government is doing because it is a federal district and ultimately Congress does control it in meaningful ways. So Republicans had passed it out of the House, not totally a party line vote, but pretty close. They got a few dozen Democrats with them, but most Democrats, vast majority, voted to protect the city council. And the argument was, well, we have to protect home rule for Washington, D.C. These clowns want to make D.C. a state, right? They want to make this medium-ish to large-sized city a state. And the only reason they want to do that, as I always say, is political power. They want two U.S. senators from D.C., deep, deep, deep blue. That's it. It's a power grab. No one actually believes D.C. should be a state. It's not serious. There are other proposals like, oh, taxation without representation. These left-wing people love taxes. And if they get represented, then they can move, first of all, or they can have a lot of D.C. lopped off into Maryland if they want it. But they don't want that. They want two new senators. That's the point. But this is a city that cannot govern itself. And the people that the electorate in Washington, D.C. have put in charge are nutcases, doing crazy things. Even the mayor's like, well, no, this is too much veto. They overruled her. They overrode the uh, the veto almost unanimously on this crime stuff. So Congress stepping in, the Republicans passed it out of the House over the objections of almost all the Democrats who were sticking with the D.C. statehood, home rule thing, and then it was going over to the Senate. And last we checked, a couple days ago, we told you about this, the Democrats in D.C. were lobbying their fellow Democrats in the U.S. Senate, saying, you've got to let us control our own city, home rule. But it's a federal district. It's affecting these lawmakers. A lot of them have a second home in D.C. Their staffers work in Washington, D.C., The stabbings and the shootings and the carjackings and the robberies and the assaults, I mean, it's out of control. And I think Democrats are scared on the crime issue, as they should be. A lot of them openly embraced defund the police or a version of defund the police police and played footsie with those people and indulged defund the police back when it was politically hot, back in 2020. And then crime got bad and a lot of voters got angry and the Democrats have been backpedaling as fast as they possibly can. And they recognize, all right, here's a disaster in Washington, D.C. on crime. Our party is causing it. And here's a Republican vote that they're forcing us to take to try to get some control over this and not reduce penalties for gun crimes, for crying out loud, and carjackings. It's such a bad look. And the question was, you had like President Biden stuck in this vice between the progressive, quote-unquote, justice and equity-minded activists and the D.C. City Council and the squad, and then a bunch of Democrats, including himself and his would-be running mate, the vice president, 
who were very much involved in the defund the police stuff, redirecting funds, the bail fund money that Kamala Harris was trying to raise for rioters and criminals. They want to airbrush all of that away. And here's a potential trap that the Republicans, you could accuse the Republicans of setting the trap, but there would be like no risk of the trap if it weren't such a terrible like blood-stained basket case in Washington, D.C. So after a lot of indecision and a few Democrats in the Senate starting to indicate, including not even like the normal ones who occasionally waver, saying, you know, we might just side with the Republicans on this. We might have to cast votes to overturn this thing because of the crime issue. President Biden decided, sort of out of nowhere, that he would support overriding what the D.C. Council is doing on crime, which caught some people off guard. I'll get to that in a second. But he tweeted this yesterday. I support D.C. statehood and home rule, but I don't support some of the changes D.C. Council put forward. If the Senate votes to overturn what the D.C. Council did, I'll sign it. So first of all, this is one more indication, I would say, that maybe Joe Biden actually is going to run for re-election. This is a pivot to the center. He realized there's a problem. There's a big problem for his party on crime. And this is an opportunity to try to, like, point to something, saying, like, oh, see, uh, we worked in a bipartisan way to get tough on crime in D.C. Now, the substance of the tweet is self-refuting. He says, I support D.C. statehood and home rule. Well, actually, no, you don't. You support D.C. statehood, sure. For political reasons, for power, we understand that. Should never, ever happen, if I haven't made that clear. But you don't support home rule. Because if you support D.C. home rule, then you support D.C. making decisions for itself by its local government. This is what they've decided to do. The city council overwhelmingly decided to hand a giant gift to criminals. It wasn't unpublicized. It didn't happen in the middle of the night. It's not like it... They didn't know what they were voting on. They voted on it. They passed it. The mayor warned them not to do it. The police warned them not to do it. They did it anyway. The mayor vetoed it. They overrode it overwhelmingly in a separate vote again. They knew exactly what they were doing. These are the elected representatives of these left-wing Democrats in Washington, D.C. They made this choice. That's home rule. Now, it's getting a lot of people maimed and killed and robbed, but that's home rule. And the Republicans said, no, we have authority to overrule this because of the nature, the special separate nature of D.C. Democrats kind of wanted to oppose it, but realized that they were in some political trouble. And then the vote started to peel off. And then, boom, Biden says, I'm for home rule, but not really. LOL, just kidding. We want to get rid of this crazy thing that they're doing, which vitiates home rule. And also, I think, really helps highlight the reason that D.C. should never be a state. They can't be trusted to govern themselves, obviously. What an embarrassment. And what a tragedy. Just all the victims of this crime, right, done for racial justice. The vast majority of the victims are people of color. It's just awful. So now you've got the White House coming in and Biden coming in and basically throwing his support behind this Republican effort. So this is going to be a win. This is going to be a W for the GOP. Now you've got Senate Democrats who come probably stampeding over to make this a bipartisan vote, here's the political side of it that I think is absolutely amazing. Biden didn't make this decision because he's such a weak leader, because the White House lives in fear of its left-wing base, because they can't make decisions, because they're incompetent. 
they didn't know what they were going to do on this issue. And so they just left everyone in the party twisting in the wind to see what Biden was going to eventually decide. And then what he eventually decided to do was to side against what the vast majority of House Democrats have already voted for. Right. This thing has already passed the House. And kudos to the Republicans in the House and Speaker McCarthy and the whole crew. They prioritized this. They created this squeeze for the Democrats. But when they held the vote, the Democrats were still under the impression that the Democrat thing to do was to support the D.C. City Council because of home rule and statehood and all this stuff. And because I think fundamentally a lot of them are very weak on crime and believe all this nonsense on equity. So and plus it was a Republican idea. We hate the Republicans. They have terrible ideas. So they were going to vote no. And 173 of them voted no. House Democrats. Few of them voted yes, but the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of the Hakeem Jeffries contingent, House Democrats, they voted with the side and on the side of the D.C. City Council. And then they stick their necks out with that very bad, stupid vote, like on substance, a terrible vote. But they did it because they felt like that was the party line. That's what they were supposed to do as members of the tribe. And then Biden comes in and just kneecaps them. So, oh, just kidding. We're actually in favor of this. I'll sign this if the Senate passes it. Now you've got 173 House Democrats, including a number of them who would probably try to position themselves as moderates back home, who have voted for this absolutely psychotic New status quo inflicted on D.C. by the city council. They have taken that side, which was so radical and dangerous that even Joe Biden couldn't abide it. And he didn't bother to make that decision and take that leadership soon enough. So he basically walked his party off the plank in the House to blindly vote along almost party lines for this extremely harmful idea. I mean, the ads write themselves to then ultimately basically switch sides and hand the Republicans a win with a big on the record vote that a lot of House Democrats are going to struggle to explain. And boy, are the Democrats mad. I've seen some of the stories about this. Lawmakers not being quoted by name, but being quoted on background, House Democrats bleeping amateur hour bleep show. Heads should roll over this. House Democrats blindsided. Well, you get what you deserve. The heart bleeds for these people. They didn't care about people bleeding all over Washington, D.C. from this crime. They just assumed that the party line was, we're sticking with the zealots, so they almost all voted that way, and then Biden decided for his own political future, maybe this isn't a great look. So never not, no, never mind here, Bal. We're voting yes, actually, after they've already vote, voted no. Scores of them. He screwed them over. Bad, inept, politically motivated leadership, if you can call it that. And it's not even a competent politics first. Competent politics first would have figured out this was a political problem and they would have made the decision for political reasons sooner. Instead, a bunch of indecision and these people are out there twisting in the wind having voted the other way. Indefensible.
Just an amazing turn of events. D.C. statehood. What a crock. We'll take a break. A few more crime-related stories that you have to hear. One from the West Coast, one from the Midwest. Details coming up on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I'm Guy Benson. Since we're talking about crime, how about a quote-unquote progress update? First in Seattle, a left-wing progressive judge in King County, so Seattle, Washington, released a mass shooter without bail. This guy was a, it was a gang-related shooting, shot seven people. This is a mass shooting. One of them died, six others wounded. No bail, released. Just had to promise to return to court. Even prosecutors there were saying, no, this guy has a history of violating court orders, illegally possessing a gun. Then he shot seven people. The judge is like, yeah, go ahead. Ankle monitor, say with your grandma, it's fine. It's crazy. Then in Chicago, where we just were earlier in the week, unfortunately, more of the same, Chicago police officer murdered on Wednesday. Close-range exchange of gunfire. 18-year-old suspect shot an officer multiple times. Cop died. This suspect, the shooter, was just a few months ago involved in another crime, another significant crime. He was arrested at the time. There was a push by police to get him charged with serious felony. And the prosecutor, the left-wing prosecutor's office in Chicago, decided not to file felony charges against this guy. And then ultimately just dropped them all together. So this guy was involved in a major gun crime, got away with it completely, and then a few months later murdered a Chicago Police Department officer in cold blood. An officer who was responding to another crime. I think a domestic incident came to help someone. And this monster, out free, like, you know, scot-free, based on the last crime, thanks to the generosity and the progress, the equity from that prosecutor, well, then he was free with a gun to murder a cop, and he did. That's Chicago. City needs help. They might be getting it. We'll see. Guy Benson Show back after this. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, our online home. Podcast is free every day. 
Well, joining us now is United States Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee. And Senator, first of all, it's great to see you yesterday, and I'm looking forward to our conversation here in Florida tomorrow on stage. We've got a lot to talk about here and want to dive right into it in this conversation. Welcome back to the show, first of all. I want to get your take on what you experienced in the Judiciary Committee this week with the Attorney General coming before your committee and answering a lot of very tough questions, particularly from the Republican members, obviously, from the intimidation of Supreme Court justices outside their homes to apparent double standards on enforcement in various respects. I mean, the list went on. What was your impression of Attorney General Garland? Uh, Were you satisfied with his answers? I was not satisfied with his answers because I think he used a lot of ambiguous language. He tried to evade giving answers to the questions that we were asking. And I spent my time showing how the responses he had given and the actions that he's taken really speak to two systems of justice, two different types of investment investigations for actions that are similarly situated and also two tiers of justice when you look at the outcomes. And these are things that we should be mindful of as we look at this administration, because what he has put in place is a system of justice that investigates, that goes after outcomes, One set for people that are the political liberal elite and another set for people of faith or conservatives or individuals that have a religious underpinning, pro-lifers. So, and, you know, that is really the bulk of America. And people have been so frustrated with the DOJ. And to not get straight answers was frustrating to us. Yeah. And here's one example of it. Senator Cruz of Texas, who's also down here, he asked the question about the intimidation of the Supreme Court justices at their homes. And here's the the type of sort of uh, evasive language that you're talking about, Senator. Here's the exchange cut 15 from earlier this week. In the wake of the leak of the Dobbs decision, when rioters descended at the homes of six Supreme Court justices night after night, After night, you did nothing. When extremist groups like Ruth Senas and Jane's Revenge openly organized campaigns of harassment at the homes of justices, you sat on your hands. When these same groups posted online information about where the justices worship or their home addresses or where their kids went to school, you again sat on your hands and did nothing. Has the Department of Justice brought even a single case under this statute? It's a yes, no question. The job of the United States Marshals is to defend the lives so of the So the answer ju- is no. It's to defend the lives of the justices, and that's their number one priority. They have Why full- are you unwilling to say no? The answer is no. You know it's no. I know it's no. Everyone in this, in this hearing room knows it's no. All right, so, Senator, there's a law, right? Whether you think it's a good law or a bad law, there's a federal law that says you cannot target federal judges this way. They were targeted exactly that way many, many times over, often for nights or weeks on end. There was one assassination attempt, by the way, against Justice Kavanaugh. And Senator Cruz, and I know a lot of you guys were curious, like, have you guys attempted to enforce that law even once? 
And we heard there no answer to that question from the attorney general. That's exactly right. And I queried him about why they have arrested 11 uh, peaceful protesters in Nashville, people that were outside a uh, clinic, a pregnancy clinic, but they have not arrested the group that firebombed that clinic, even though James Revenge spray-painted their name on the wall of that clinic. And he said, well, you know, it's easier to catch people that do crimes in the day rather than people who commit crimes at night. It's harder <laughs> to catch them. Yeah. And I, I said, and he said they hadn't been able to find out who James Revenge are. And I, I told him, I said, well, listen, we're going to help you out with this. They're very active on social media. So we will produce a letter and we'll send you some of the evidence. And then, you know, I think that the FBI fully knows how to investigate people that commit crimes at night. And to think that he could sit there and say that was ridiculous. Yes, as I told him, I said, this is your job. Yep, and, and the thing is, the, the juxtaposition, I think, really speaks for itself. The extremely aggressive enforcement of arrests and prosecutions and, like, bursting into people's homes with a bunch of guns if they're anti-abortion peaceful protesters who might be breaking the law. I'm not saying that if you're breaking the law, there should be no consequences. That's not my argument. But you look at the way the Justice Department goes after those people who they say are blocking access to clinics or whatever versus terrorists that are, like, firebombing and vandalizing and calling in bomb threats and that sort of thing to pro-life centers. And they're just like, oh, well, those are crimes done at night as opposed to, you know, non-anonymously in the middle of the day. So we're just going to go after these pro-lifers. The idea that there's not an ideological component to that, I think, defies logic and certainly defies the way that Democrats tend to do business when they've got power in Washington, D.C. Senator Blackburn, I want to ask you this. You and I were chatting a little bit last night. Uh, I believe over a Malbec, if I'm not mistaken. And you you were talking about a trip that you recently took abroad where you were talking to some foreign officials, allied officials in Europe, and you sort of had this lightning strike moment about China and Mexico and the fentanyl crisis that I think is actually quite profound and maybe some americans instinctively might wonder this but they they haven't pinpointed it tell us about those conversations that you had and what you think this important revelation is yes you know guy uh, as i was in other countries what i realized was fentanyl is not a problem we have a fentanyl epidemic and crisis in this country we have about uh, 70,000 americans that lost their lives from fentanyl poisoning last year and it is a truly an epidemic and what i have realized is this epidemic is unique to us you are not seeing this in other countries and what i've realized is that these chinese chemists with these precursor chemicals are working with the mexican cartels uh, they're um, getting the precursors into mexico they are making the fentanyl there they are running it across 
the southern border. Indeed, the Border Patrol last year apprehended 14,000 pounds of fentanyl, which is enough to kill 3.3 billion people. But what is so interesting to me is to think in terms of how China and the cartels are targeting us here in the U.S., because you do not hear of this type epidemic in other countries. And when you look at what the um, Chinese Communist Party is doing with TikTok to surveil young people, to poison the minds of young people, when you look at the depression, the anxiety that is being caused by some of these social media platforms, it makes you wonder if they look at this with social media, with TikTok, uh, as some of their soft propaganda that they have out there and how aggressively, I would be curious how they classify their utilization of fentanyl and the pushing of fentanyl into our country as that really affects young people. Fentanyl is the largest killer of individuals 18 to 45 years old. And it is a growing killer of children under 18. Yeah, and and to your point, it just hadn't occurred to me, because I knew it was a huge problem in the U.S., and we talk about it constantly here, and I just assumed this must be a problem in other Western countries as well. It's like, no, this is specifically being targeted at America. Right. A lot of the people who are caught up in this or, you know, at the very tail end of the drug deals or the people taking the drugs or whatever it might be, these accidental uh, poisonings, they are victims in this. There are forces, there are powers that are funneling this extremely deadly product specifically into our country and not other places. And you were mentioning that, like, you know, we're, we're getting targeted with this crisis on purpose. And it reminded me, and I told you the story. I was in the U.K. last year and was hanging out with some friends, and we'd gone out for drinks, and they were just sort of casually talking about some of their recreational drug use. And it's, it, that's not my thing. I'm not interested in that. Uh, more than enough vices, you know, with, with wine or what have you. Thank you very much. But they were talking about it, and I said, look, I'm not interested in that type of substance. You know, you do you, I guess, but... On top of not wanting to do drugs, especially these days, I'm like, you guys are kind of crazy. Like, what if this stuff is laced with fentanyl? People are dying. They looked at me like I was nuts because they had no idea what I was talking about because it's not happening over there. It's here. And I know it sounds like maybe a little conspiratorial, Senator, but when you think of it that way, you look at where the fentanyl's coming from, you think about who is responsible for trafficking it into the United States, and then you think about basically the only country in the world where people are dying from this. I mean, it's not too crazy to suggest some of the dots need to be connected, and it's pretty pretty sinister, actually. Yes, it is so troubling that we have this environment where the – see, Joe Biden is so weak on the border, and because he doesn't respect our border – other countries do not respect our border. And when you look at the people that are coming across, the amount of human trafficking, gangs, drug trafficking, it is being done because he doesn't respect our border. Now, the cartels, as we have all heard from law enforcement, 
they know the border is open. So now they are setting up mm -hmm. shop on U.S. Mm -hmm. soil. It makes it easier for them to put their hubs in the U.S. and distribute drugs than, and that do, handle sex trafficking rings than trying to do this from out of Mexico. So the really bad guys are in that group of what we call the gotaways, the people we never see. And they get away from law enforcement. Law enforcement sees them on, um, on all of their surveillance, but they cannot get to them. So these guys are in the country. They are bringing in these drugs. They are setting up their hubs. They are not only in major U.S. cities, they are in second and third tier U.S. cities because They've been able to get in here and to set up their facilities and push these drugs, and this is killing our people. We have to get this to stop. Joe Biden should call Xi Jinping today and say, look, you stop this fentanyl trafficking, or we're going to do something about that $1 trillion trade deficit we had with you last year. They imported to us a trillion dollars more in goods than we exported to them. That is our trade deficit with them. China had a banner year last year. China is the second largest holder of our country's debt. But Joe Biden is going to have to step up and do something about this, be tough on this, secure that border and protect our young people, protect our citizens, protect these precious children that are losing their lives, protect these women and girls that are being forced into these sex trafficking rings. This has gone on too long, and we see the more we learn, just as we talk to other people from other countries, they do not have the problem that we have here. Yep. And it's not an accident is the point. And, you know, I just to go back and underline something that you just mentioned, and we talk about the border crisis a lot here on the show, and I think we need to. We often hear from our friends on the left that it's really about, you know, compassion and it's families and it's children and we're a nation of immigrants and these people are, you know, escaping persecution at home and these are just people who are asylum seekers they sort of try to put the best possible spin on it and that spin applies to some of the illegal immigrants but not most of them but they don't want to look at the reality that when you don't control the border when you don't have law and order when you don't take it seriously and you send that message to everyone that there's a way to get into this country through the southern border very bad people also take notice of that and exploit it. And there's no getting around that. And that's a real, a really big part of this policy failure from the Biden administration. Senator, we have about a minute and a half left. Very quickly, I do want to ask you, the House has this new committee on combating China. You're, of course, on the Senate side. But they had their first hearing this week on the China committee, bipartisan. And there were some protesters who interrupted, basically saying it's bigotry to have the hearings, stop Asian hate. It's just amazing to me that people actively try to conflate criticizing the Chinese Communist Party with, like, racism. That's, that's nuts. 
Especially when you look at the fact it is the Chinese Communist Party that is carrying out a genocide on the Uyghur Muslims. They have persecuted the Tibetans, the Mongolians. They have persecuted the Hong Kong freedom fighters. They are bullying Taiwan. They're bullying the Philippines and the Pacific Island nations. And China is doing all of that. The CCP is doing all of that. The CCP is persecuting their own people. We are standing up for their people. We are standing up for those Pacific Island Asian nations. We are standing up for Taiwan. And I, I think that what you have to realize is these people that are protesting and are saying this is Asian hate, my goodness, we're trying to protect them. Oh, yeah, Those no, it's like people- it's completely backwards. And it's it's ignorance is my thought or worse. They could be useful idiots or they could be like, you know, paid agitators because it's just totally, totally backwards. Got to leave it there for now. We'll see you around here tomorrow at this event. Senator Blackburn of Tennessee, our guest. So appreciate it. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We continue. It's Friday on the Guy Benson Show. Maybe not the happiest of Fridays for a couple members of the House. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, is now under investigation by the Ethics Committee. I think it's back to that Met Gala and the Tax of the Rich dress and all the money involved with that. I know there were questions about it at the time. I guess now it's a formal investigation. And then, of course, George Santos with the Ethics Committee, I guess, looking into, well, everything. So uh, we'll see how that goes. And his problem might be beyond just the Ethics Committee, if I had to guess. Some of the money questions floating around out there, I guess uh, we'll find out in due time, perhaps. We'll see. When we come back in the next hour, Trey Gowdy will be here. The Murdoch trial over. Guilty. Guilty. Life in prison. Was justice served? Trey Gowdy on all of that when we come back. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour on The Guy Benson Show is upon us. Thank you for joining us. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day on demand, plus bonus Benson on the weekend, so don't miss that. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Jeff Passan of ESPN. He'll be here later this hour. Cat Timp in the next hour. Looking forward to all of that. Fox News alert as we get going here. The Dow, with a good day, up 387 points. Closing the week out at 33,390. With us now, Trey Gowdy, former South Carolina prosecutor, host of Sunday Night in America on Fox News Channel, sevens, uh, Sundays rather at 7 Eastern. That's FNC. And is, of course, Trey Gowdy podcast as well here. Author of the new book, Start, Stay, or Leave, The Art of Decision Making. Trey, always good to talk to you. Welcome back. Thank you, guys. Great to be with you. All right, so a couple sound bites real quick to set up the conversation. Last evening, 
in a courthouse in South Carolina. The verdict was in after a very short deliberation by the jury in the Murdoch trial. Cut 27. The state versus Richard Alexander Murdoch defendant. Indictment for murder. Guilty verdict. The state versus Richard Alexander Murdoch defendant. Indictment for murder. Verdict guilty. The state versus Richard Alexander Murdoch defendant. Indictment for possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime. Verdict guilty. The state versus Richard Alexander Murdoch defendant. Indictment for possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime. Verdict guilty. Just guilty across the board there. And then today, the judge with the sentencing in cut 28. Mr. Murdoch, I sentence you to the State Department of Corrections on each of the murder indictments in the murder of your wife, Maggie Murdoch, I sentence you for the term of the rest of your natural life for the murder of Paul Murdoch, whom you probably love so much. I sentence you to prison for murdering him for the rest of your natural life those sentences will run consecutive. All right, so consecutive sentences, life terms, murder, a uh, little shade thrown in there from the judge, the son that you love so much who you murdered. Boy, okay. Uh, last time we had you on here, Trey, we were talking about the case and how it was developing in court. Does this feel like justice to you? Yes, and the speed with which the jury rendered its verdict, I mean, guy, that is, that is quick. Um, with that many witnesses, that many exhibits, you know, the judge tells the jury, you cannot even begin to deliberate until the last witness testifies. So, you know, in theory, I mean, we're talking about real people here, not robots, but in theory, you're not even supposed to start thinking in terms of guilt or non-guilt until what? I mean, Tuesday, Wednesday? I mean, whenever you come back from the jury view, because that's evidence. So the speed... And Cliff Newman, look, unless you're Rasputin, you only have one life, and there is no parole in South Carolina. So his running those sentences consecutive, one was enough, but that was the real shade he threw at him in my judgment, which is, you know, what you did is so terrible. One life sentence will take care of you, but I'm going to do them back to back um, just so you know. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that it took that amount of time, I saw an interview with one of the jurors who said it was 45 minutes, said they sort of had a little conversation and they talked and they said, ultimately, the decision that he was guilty was reached in that room within 45 minutes. There's like a multi-week trial and lots of complications and lots of song and dance from Murdoch and his attorneys and, you know, trying to point the finger elsewhere and all the waterworks and the crying and all of that and the murder uh, of both of these people, you know, rocked the community. And ultimately, the jury was buying none of it from the defense. One thing that you had mentioned last time we spoke on this, you said as a prosecutor, sort of with that that mentality, you would love to have seen a motive, a clearer motive for these murders, because that that was one piece of it that I was wondering about. You know, this is an awful guy who I think probably has a lot of blood on his hands. But why did he murder these two people? I mean, ultimately, you don't have to prove the motive. And obviously, 
they had lots of other evidence. But I wonder what you thought of that little component, uh, maybe not so little component of this crime. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, Creighton and Zelenka and John Meadows did, obviously, the jury thought they did a really good job because it was a speedy verdict. Um, I I actually thought they spent too much time on motive. I mean, God, you and I could spend the rest of our lives trying to, like, fashion some explanation where a reasonable person says, okay, yeah, now I get it. I mean, I get robbing a store because I need money, and I get, like, killing someone that made you mad. It's wrong. It's unlawful. But – but you can understand that there really is no explanation for for killing the two people that you are supposed to love the most. So if there's no explanation, then why spend a lot of time? I think you have to hint at it. You have to give the jury some bridge to Something get them. Yeah, I mean, but but I would not, you know, look, the reason that it took 45 minutes and I'm telling you, guy, I would rather have a false exculpatory statement than a thousand confessions. And people that are not prosecutors or not litigators look at me like I've lost my mind. Why would you not want a confession? Because they may not believe the police when, when you know, they tell the jury this person confessed. But a false exculpatory statement, mm-hmm. I wasn't there at the time, that was his defense. And the only reason he admitted he was lying is because he had no choice. He yep. was on video and audio. So there's this old quote from Nietzsche that I used to quote in the courtroom. I'm not upset that you lied to me. I'm upset that I can't rely on anything else you ever tell me. And I think that the quickness of the verdict was the jury's way of saying, we don't believe you at all. And we're going to prove that to you with the speed. They didn't even, I don't think. Guy, I don't even think they had time to order dinner. Yeah, and they didn't need a meal. They're like, let's get this paperwork done and uh, put the guy behind bars forever. And, you know, the thing is, I mean, obviously that was the breakthrough moment of the case. And I actually couldn't help but think, you know, we talk so much about people of younger generations spending way too much, fine, uh, too, uh, too much time on social media, on their phones, that sort of thing. Well, in this case, Paul Murdoch being on Snapchat probably was enough to get justice for his for his own murder because his dad didn't know that that video of the dog existed out there but it did and there's his voice on camera on this video proving that he was at the scene of the crime when he was swearing that he wasn't there and then he had to come out and say oh i panicked and then i lied then i kept lying and but i i didn't murder them even though i was right there at the time and told you it was i mean you you, I, I kept saying, I don't know how you come back from that. And obviously he didn't come back from that. You know, for a while it was setting up, as most trials are, what the police did versus what they should have done in the eyes of a defense attorney. So for a while it was all about whether the police you know, properly secured the crime scene, processed the crime scene. It was about forensics and ballistics and blood spatter. And then all of a sudden – that's no longer what the trial is about. It's about can I believe this guy who had excruciating detail about which bird dog was chasing a chicken but is pretty sketchy on where he was at the time his wife and son had their heads blown off. And I just think – look, the other And he was there. Guy <laughs> he said he wasn't there and he was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean you didn't need to wake up from a nap, Alex, because you were there. Here, This is, I think – if there's a silver lining, or not a silver lining, but one thing that I marvel at, you know, guy, you're a, a I think, a limited government conservative. If you yep. like small government, 
Yep. You should love juries. And they didn't have to get, you know, 55% to landslide. I mean, you can be elected president with less than 50% of the vote, but but juries have to be unanimous. The fact that 12 strangers can still come together on something as important as murder and life without parole and be unanimous, yep. I think should, even in the face of the darkness of murder, give us a little bit of hope. Yeah, and what a what a fall from grace for this whole family. It seems very richly deserved based on all the allegations around them. Trey, like 10 seconds, to your eye, any grounds for a legitimate appeal here? Zero. Zero. And I, I, I mean, I hear defense attorneys, you know, but zero. Yeah. Uh, Cliff Newman did an outstanding job, and whatever doors, you know, were opened— Uh, We're opened by the defense attorneys. And now slam shut that prison door forever on this guy. And as far as I'm concerned, he deserved it. Trey Gowdy, former prosecutor down there in South Carolina, Fox News colleague. Watch him on Sunday night, 7 p.m. Eastern Fox News Channel. Trey, thank you. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Thanks for tuning in. I like to keep an eye on Governor Glenn Youngkin and how he's doing in Virginia. Not only is he my governor, I think that he's an interesting experiment right now in this country. Because Virginia is a state that Joe Biden carried by 10 points in 2020. It's a state that was red for a long time, turned blue during the Obama years and has never looked back. But in 2021, those off-year elections, Glenn Youngkin... And his ticket shifted the electorate roughly 13 points rightward and won a two and a half, three point victory in that race across the top of the ticket. The first significant Republican statewide victory in Virginia since 2009. Right. So it has not been really even a purple state lately. It's been a blue state. But Glenn Youngkin and Winsome Sears and Jason Biaris, they all won. Youngkin ran a great campaign. And was able to consolidate the Republican base and then bring over independents and some disaffected Democrats. And that's how you can pull something like that off. Right? It's not a small thing. But then the question becomes, all right, great, you've won an election. Congratulations. Now what? How do you govern? How do people respond to that governance? And while Yunkin is maybe less in on the culture wars, which is not necessarily something that I'm saying in a pejorative way. Culture wars are very often started by the left, and conservatives have to engage. And if they're effective at it, that's great. But Youngkin has picked his spots, particularly on education. They're focusing on tax cutting. He is, I think, accumulating the right enemies and largely beating them. He has carved out a reputation on schools and parental rights that is not only, I think, very appealing as a conservative, it's also been very successful. So, look, I know his name gets mentioned occasionally running for president. I'm not sure if that's the right thing for him to do right now. He's one year, almost exactly one year, into a four-year term and cannot, by the way, seek re-election immediately in Virginia. You can't have consecutive terms. Weird thing in the state constitution. But he's a business guy. He's one year in. Personally, selfishly, I hope that he just focuses on the gig in Virginia, at least for these next couple of years. And he's a young guy. You know, there's lots of things he might have off in the future. 
The reason I mention it is because there's a new poll, very well-known pollster from Roanoke College in Virginia, where they've come out with some data about how Virginia voters are feeling. And Glenn Youngkin is in this survey at 57% approval, with just 35% disapproval in the Commonwealth of Virginia. He's at plus 22 with a solid majority in favor of the job that he has done. And the thing is, he hasn't, I think maybe stylistically and rhetorically, he has slightly softer edges than some of the other more firebrand-type conservatives out there. But it's not like he's been governing as some sort of wishy-washy, squishy moderate. He's been governing as a conservative, just, I think, in a smart and effective way. And here's a blue state. I mean, it has some residual redness to it for various reasons, but you don't build a 57% approval rating in Virginia without keeping your people on side and bringing other people over as well. And you look at the numbers, there's actually roughly a third of Democrats approve of the job that he's doing. Roughly 90% of Republicans do. And obviously he's performing well among independents. In the same poll, and I think this is illustrative, because you could say, oh, maybe people were all in a good mood. So maybe there was some great inflation here in this particular poll for some reason. No, they also polled Joe Biden's approval rating in Virginia. Same poll. Same sample. Joe Biden's approval rating in Virginia is 38%, almost 20 points worse than Glenn Youngkin's. Biden's disapproval rating in Virginia is 56%. So they're almost exactly inverted. Youngkin popular, Biden unpopular. When you look at the national polling, on average, like you go to Real Clear Politics, the right track, wrong track number is massively underwater. As of yesterday, the right track, wrong track was 26% right track, 65% wrong track nationally. That's the Real Clear Politics average this week. People very unhappy about the direction of the country in Virginia. It's above water. 55% of majority say the Commonwealth, the state, is heading in the right direction. Now, they also looked ahead in this poll to 2024. And they asked, first of all, Virginia, do you want Glenn Youngkin to run for president? And most Virginians said, no, they don't. Right? They want him to stay put. They don't want him to seek that office. But just in case, under, I would say, highly unlikely scenarios right now, but let's say one thing led to the next and by some... Borderline political miracle, Glenn Youngkin was the Republican nominee for president facing Joe Biden next year. In Virginia, head-to-head, it's Youngkin 55, Biden 39. In Virginia, in a state that Biden carried comfortably, that Barack Obama carried twice, that's interesting. Now, they did some of the other potential matchups as well. Joe Biden narrowly leading Donald Trump head-to-head in Virginia. Trump's numbers, by the way, on like approval and favorability, totally unchanged. He is a known commodity. People know how they feel about him, unchanged from the last poll in this series. And he is slightly trailing Joe Biden in the poll. Ron DeSantis is up five over Joe Biden in Virginia, 48-43 in this poll. That's in a general election. However, in a Republican primary, Trump is ahead. Trump 39, DeSantis 28 percent, everyone else in the single digits. But Youngkin and DeSantis are a lot of people's second choice. It seems like a lot of people are open to those two, at least in the Republican electorate in Virginia. Just something to keep an eye on. It's interesting. 
if Republicans could put Virginia in play in a serious way in 2024, that would really create a bunch of headaches for the Democratic Party. So just flagging some of that. And tonight, I believe, Youngkin's going on CNN for a town hall style meeting on education. I'm sure he'll get some tough questions, but he's bringing that message beyond just the traditional choir. And we'll see how he acquits himself, but that's like right in his wheelhouse. So I'm enjoying what I'm seeing from the governor, the state where I live, and I just wanted to bring some of those numbers to you. I mean, it's, it's good news for Yunkin. It's potentially hopeful news for the Republicans in general in Virginia, where there hasn't been a lot for the last decade plus. And boy, just some rough numbers there for the president. Again, in a state that he won last time by double digits. Interesting. We'll take a break. We'll come back. Jeff Passon of ESPN. Baseball almost upon us. We'll get an insider's look when we return to The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson. Halfway through the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. Joining us now, ESPN senior MLB insider Jeff Passan. In addition to his columns at ESPN.com, he regularly appears on ESPN programming, SportsCenter, GetUp, etc., providing updates on all the late-breaking news in Major League Baseball. And here's the thing, I have to confess, I'm not quite yet in a full baseball mentality as a sports fan. I'm focused on Northwestern hoops. I'm focused on Devils hockey. But I'm here in Florida for the day and spring training in full swing. So why not have this conversation as baseball is nearly here? Jeff Passan, welcome back to the show. I will get you into baseball by the end of this conversation, guys. Okay, it's a challenge, and I like that you just threw down the gauntlet. And I don't doubt it, actually, because I want to start here. Most of the baseball content that has been seeping into my social feed is from you, and there's a couple of videos that have captured my attention over the last week or so, one of which we briefly mentioned last week, that wild moment in the preseason game, Atlanta and Boston, and how that game ended with the bases loaded based on this new rule change. Then relatedly, I think you tweeted it either today or yesterday, a strikeout that took 20 seconds in one of the Yankees' preseason games, the Yankees, the relief pitcher came in, struck a man out in 20 seconds. And I was skeptical. I clicked play on the video, and, yep, that's how it went down. This new pitch clock and all the related rules definitely causing conversations among fans. What are the effects so far of the new rules, and how is it affecting spring training? What are you hearing from, like, you know, the guys? Yeah, it's the dominant storyline of spring training so far. And frankly, I think it's going to remain that throughout the season, Guy, because what we're seeing is a completely different version of a sport than what we have over the last probably 30 years. Baseball has slowly ground to a halt in terms of its pace. The average game time last year was three hours, seven minutes, and uh, the the gain of half an hour of game time over the last quarter century or so uh, really has been a problematic thing for baseball, I think, in terms of not just maintaining fans who have a finite amount of time 
to devote to sports every day, which is what baseball is, but in bringing in new fans and uh, whether it is families that can't afford to stay the ballpark, uh, stay at the ballpark that late, or it's uh, particularly a younger group of fans that frankly uh, in, in a lot of cases doesn't have uh, the desire to sit around for three plus hours every night watching a game. I think there's a psychological barrier to that three hour mark and major league baseball saw this as an existential crisis and thought, okay, what is the most elegant solution that we can come up with? It's not cutting games to seven innings. It's, essentially trying to restore what baseball looked like in the past. And look, that's a gamble. It's a real gamble to suggest that back in the 1970s and 1980s, the game was better than it is these days. And yet, as someone who was born in 1980 and who grew up at the end of uh, fast-paced baseball and, uh, you know, non-clock baseball, uh, I, I see the games now and I'm like, oh, my God. This looks different. This feels like listening to a podcast on 1.25 speed, (laughs) but God, it's fun. And it encourages players not just to do things faster, but but really to get back to the rhythm of the game uh, when the game was at its most popular. However... So, like, I, I get all that. And, yes, sometimes it's very long and it's, you know, a 7 o'clock start on a weeknight. It's a Tuesday night. You know, you'll schlep up to the ballpark or whatever. Then all of a sudden it's, you know, it's 1030. It's, you know, if you got little kids, it's hard. I get all of that. And the attention span issue is fine. I just don't like the idea of clocks playing any significant role in this game. We have every other sport, basically of the big ones, certainly, are controlled by the clock. Baseball is not that. It's like what distinguishes and separates the sport from the other ones, and I like that. I'm worried about losing that. And the other thing is, and sort of contradicting my previous point to some extent, I enjoy, maybe not on a Tuesday night when I've got work the next day, but on a Saturday afternoon, I like going to the ballpark, having a beer, sitting back, taking in the sun, people watching a little bit, and letting the game just breathe and unfold at its pace. And sometimes you get the cat-and-mouse game where, you know, it's quickly 0-2 and and the batter needs to shake it up, so he calls time and takes a little walk to sort of mess with the pitcher. Like, those things are part of the game that I think that they're now trying to forcibly eliminate. I just wonder how much of a backlash there's going to be from, like, fuddy-duddies like me who actually enjoy some of the traditions that may be, quote-unquote, problematic for future fans. I don't know. All of those points are fair. I think what distinguishes baseball is not its ability to breathe, but uh, the necessity to think, right, the the strategic elements. I, I think you can argue baseball is the most strategic of our major professional sports in America. And I think the clock adds another layer of strategy. And look, maybe I'm just um, drinking the Kool-Aid here. Maybe uh, the fact that I see over the last 25 years, 10 million fewer fans are going to games per year. Uh, I see that as a threat to the sport. And I see baseball's relevancy in the sporting landscape um, not erased entirely, but certainly the, the NFL is the dominant sport. And you could argue the NBA, college football, and maybe even college basketball, uh, certainly during March, or uh, if not on par, then 
more relevant than baseball. And so I think that Major League Baseball and the commissioner's office really worried about where baseball is in the landscape these days and figured, hey, if you love baseball, we're not taking any of the baseball away guy. Like, it's not a different game in the respect of there are fewer outs than 27 or uh, the strike zone is different or, you know, you walk on three balls and strike out on two strikes. It's none of that. It's essentially you looking at a nice, large, marbled piece of meat, and you can leave the fat in there if you want. If you really want to be gluttonous, then you're not cutting the fat cap off the top of the brisket. But if you want to trim some of the fat, something that is just empty calories, that's what they're doing. This is just a game that is sped up by taking away the parts that are irrelevant to its outcome. And I think that's how Major League Baseball is uh, is approaching this. And, and it's interesting to me. You talk about the, the old fuddy-duddies who may not know. The old fuddy-duddies guy like this because it's more reminiscent of the game that they grew up watching. The people who are having the toughest time are Gen Zers and, and younger millennials. Uh, they look at this and they're like, hold on a second. This isn't the game I love. Right. But I think I – think Major League Baseball is making a calculated bet that if you love we'll baseball, yeah, you're just you're going to get used to it. It's, it's yeah. So it's look, maybe maybe I'm I'm not an old fuddy duddy. Maybe I'm a young fuddy duddy for the reason that you just explained, and I'm still sort of stuck on your very elaborate meat analogy. I have to say, uh, perhaps more elegant than this solution they've come up with, but. It's like, okay, what's the alternative? Are the other alternatives being floated out there even less elegant, less appealing? I think there's maybe a case to be made on that front. Another rules change that I quickly want to get to here, Jeff, is the end of the shift, right? This drove people crazy where they would use all the analytics and the defense would all move to one side of the field, basically, to try to cut down on a hitter's strength, basically, uh, which was strategic, and it's using numbers and that sort of thing. It did change the game in a significant way. Now they're trying to reverse that change. How are they going to enforce it exactly? Because, you know, there's always been shading in baseball. Like, okay, we're going to shade this guy toward right because he's a pull hitter and a lefty, whatever, versus a shift. What are the rules? How are they enforcing that? Shading is still allowed. It's it's a pretty simple thing. You need to have two infielders on each side of the second base bag and all of the infielders need to have their feet on the dirt when the pitch is thrown. So uh, the enforcement of this is a little different than the pitch clock. You can actually challenge the defensive shift rules with instant replay. If you feel like there's been Mm. a violation and sort of like, like he left too early on a tag up type thing. Like, let's see if that's, Actually, what happened? Uh, yeah, I, huh. Yep. I, I mean, if we're going to equate this to football, it's like you can use replay for neutral zone infractions. That, that's essentially what this is. Uh, you cannot do that with the pitch clock. There is no challenging that. But uh, the, the hope is that they're going to bring back more action into the game. Now, that action comes via singles mostly. So if you want to make an argument against this, I think the the best is that, okay, we're here for doubles and triples and home runs, not singles. But I think there's a, a romanticization of the single in baseball and the idea that batting average fell to the lowest it's been since 1968 last year. 
This is all part of the rules, which really are trying to highlight the athleticism in the game, whether yep. it's via the, the hits that are dropping that wouldn't in the past and you have more base runners then, or the fact that they have bigger bases now. And with bigger bases, there's less room in between the bags and those bang-bang plays may go more to the runners trying to steal bases than they do the catchers and taggers. Now, of course, it could slow down the game if you have more base hits and more base runners, right? Fewer outs recorded, but I guess that's the other side uh, of this equation that they're trying to figure out and find whatever this new equilibrium is going to look like. Jeff Passan, as we look to not the broad view of the sport and some of the changes being made, as we look to this coming season, in terms of your power rankings in your mind, you know, who's maybe most improved? Is there a team that's been great that's more diminished What's your outlook for some of the, the big teams, and is there maybe uh, one team or perhaps more that you think are dark horses out there? I mean, the National League West is extremely interesting. The San Diego Padres, who exist in a small media market, have somehow turned into a leviathan of spending. And seeing them go out and sign Xander Bogarts for $280 million and lock up Manny Machado for 350 when they have Fernando Tatis already at 340 and sign you Darvish and Joe Musgrove both for a hundred plus million dollars uh, and potentially lock up Juan Soto long term. And, uh, you know, the, the hope is they're going to go after Shohei Otani when he's a free agent after the season. Like the Padres are here to stay and they are very, a very real threat to the Los Angeles Dodgers who remember they beat in the postseason yep. last yep. year, and the Dodgers really didn't do a whole lot this offseason. There were a bunch of really, you know top-end shortstops, Trey Turner getting $300 million, Bogarts, Carlos Correa. Um, the, I mean, there was a lot out there, and they chose to stick internally with Gavin Lux, who tore an ACL in like the second or third spring training game. So. I'm not going to suggest that the Dodgers aren't going to be good this year, but let's remember they won 111 games last year, so they are not the same team that won 111 games. All right, that's the NL West. Uh, Yankees, I'm a Yankee fan, so obviously you know they got the judge deal done for a huge amount of money. There was some drama there. Uh, some other moves as well. You know, The Yankees, in my mind, this is how I've been for a couple of years now. They're going to be good, but are they going to be good enough? And I don't know. I mean, I I look at the American League East uh, as if it has to go through the Yankees after the way they played last year, not just signing Aaron Judge, but bringing in Carlos Rodon as well. That said, uh, the Toronto Blue Jays are a very good top-to-bottom team. The Tampa Bay Rays are always in the mix, even if you don't know – uh, you know, three-quarters of the players on the team. The Baltimore Orioles right now are an ascendant team with the best farm system in baseball and a bunch of good young players. And that leaves the Boston Red Sox, who, you know, whatever you think of them, the, the notion that the Red Sox are going to finish in last for the third time in four years doesn't seem very likely just because they're the Red Sox. Actually, but yeah. yeah, it sounds fantastic. Um, <laughs> the, the American League East, to me, you could, aside from the Red Sox uh, and probably the Orioles, you, you know, if Tampa wins that division, wouldn't surprise me. If Toronto wins that division, wouldn't surprise me. But the, the real thing with the Yankees isn't the 162 in the regular season. It's okay. How are they going to perform in October? Yep. And yep. I, I hate to, I hate to bring up uh, scars here, but 
Uh, they got swept by the Astros in the AL. That's right. That's year. right. And, it has to be and said. it was it yes, it was an embarrassing sweep too. So uh, the Yankees have an October bugaboo right now, and they need to figure out how to get over it because it's been a decade plus since their last championship, and you know they've been waiting for number twenty eight for a long, long time. And I'm not sure this team, as currently constructed, uh, is going to be the one that gets it. Yep, uh, I'm not sure either. I'll be watching, and maybe months from now we can revisit that question, and hopefully we'll talk before then. Jeff Passan of ESPN, our guest as we are on the brink of baseball, which always puts a smile on my face, even if it's still weeks away, right around this neck of the woods, South Florida, a lot of baseball being played in these early days, spring training. Jeff, great stuff. Always appreciate it. Let's talk soon. Embrace that pitch clock, guy. Uh, we'll see. I'm, you know, I'm a conservative. We don't like change, right? We're grumpy about things sometimes. So just, you know, just give me a few months maybe, and then we can check back in. Jeff Basson, our guest on the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show. We were talking earlier in the week about the Chicago mayoral election. We did the show on Wednesday from Chicago. Mayor Lightfoot out. There's a runoff now for early April, and it's sort of like a centrist, moderate Dem against one of these left-wingers who would be quite arguably worse than Lori Lightfoot. And one of my friends in Chicago sent me a screenshot. This is a post, I believe, on Facebook from the daughter of the longtime Democratic Illinois Senate president, a guy called John Cullerton, who was in the Illinois Senate for decades Big part of the problem. What a mess that state is in so many ways. So his daughter, Maggie, is one of these hardcore, very white, of course, social justice warriors. In fact, the left-wing guy who's moved on to the runoff, his strongest precinct in the city was a very rich, very progressive, very white precinct. He's black, but this is like white progressive performance in some ways. So she this daughter of this prominent politician, just melting down on social, that Lori Lightfoot had lost and that gasp, Paul Vallis, a moderate Democrat, had been in first place at least in the initial vote count. So here's what she posted. Well, we white liberal Chicagoans sure do love our dog whistles, don't we? Jumped at the chance to assuage our inaction while performing anti-racism Since the murder of George Floyd, I am just so deeply ashamed of us. Please know that if you cast a ballot for Paul Vallis, you no longer get to cling to your bystander justification. You are now just as racist and hateful and bigoted as Donald Trump. Make no mistake, this is exactly who you voted for, and it would have taken so little effort for you to educate yourself. I see you, and now I know exactly who you are, and I will make sure to remind you of that fact loudly in public every time. That's a total normal one there from Maggie. That is a wild take. This is a moderate Democrat. She's flipping out about. Might win. And now it's just Donald Trump, you bigots. They're out of their minds. By the way, I tweeted the screenshot. I authenticated it, tweeted it, and then she made her social media private. (laughs) Okay, why, why, Maggie? Aren't you proud of your anti-racism? wonder if Dad gave her a call. Guy Benson Show final hour coming up Fridays with Kat is next.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy hour on a Friday on the Guy Benson Show from sunny South Florida. I'm Guy Benson. Very glad to have you here. Thank you for tuning in. If you couldn't catch all of today's show live, we do have a podcast. It's free of charge every day on demand. We do recommend it as it grows. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. That includes bonus Benson, by the way, on the weekends. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Same platforms, but yours truly, my personal account. You can also follow me at Guy P. Benson. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Fantastic. If you haven't had it, you are missing out. Check it out. It is delicious. TheLongDrink.com for more, including where it's sold near you, ordering online, TheLongDrink.com. 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. Joining us now from our New York headquarters is our friend and colleague, Kat Timp, Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld, every weeknight at 11 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel, and author of the forthcoming book, You Can't Joke About That, available everywhere April 18th, but you can and should pre-order now. Hello, Kat. Hi, Guy. Hi. How's the book stuff going? It's going great. I can't wait for it to come out, and it's gonna, everyone's just going gonna, gonna to break the Internet going to it's going to change the world um you know you hate to you know life is short you know but i i hate to you know wish away the time until then but i'm very excited well and i know i've been promised an advanced copy yeah and i will be reading it with great anticipation uh for each unfolding chapter i kind of want to bring it on flights with me and just sort of flash it around you know like lording it over people like look what i have i love that which you can't read yet, but you can very soon pre-order now. Like, I want to be like a little billboard for your book. I love that. Okay. I will I will work on that as soon as I get the advanced copy, that is. Like, you know, that that's step one. Uh, so I want to talk to you about a few things. Let's start here. We had a conversation on this show earlier in the week about this. I don't even know if you can, like, call it a news story. But it was something of a stir in D.C., and then it kind of went mini-viral online. It was about... Joe and Jill Biden going to a restaurant in D.C. and ordering the same dish. They both got the same thing, and people freaked out about it. Now, I have subsequently learned that the rigatoni dish that they both got is like the signature dish at this place, and it's really, really good. So that's a mitigating factor in their decision. But some people were harshly judging a couple that would go to a restaurant and order exactly the same meal because of the sharing opportunities that were given up and all of that. I am curious how Kat and Cam do the restaurant thing. Yeah, I, I just I feel like Joe Biden's a lot more of a bad boy than I thought because Cam we wouldn't let him order the same thing. If he wanted to order the same thing, I'd say, "Babe, oh." Because, oh, you would throw, you would like, you would make a scene. You're yeah, like, I mean, oh, no, I want to try this other thing. Uh, yeah, exactly. And then whichever one's worse is the one he eats. <laughs> that's how it works. I, I mean, that's, that's how it works. I, 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 again, whatever makes them happy. Okay. Uh, but I, I just, I could never, it is, it is astounding. Unless it's a place, you know, you've been through, been to before. The menu doesn't change much. 
uh, you know, you've had everything on the menu, then then maybe it's allowed. But I, I don't understand ordering the literal. Don't you want to you know, the whole, that's like the whole point of having a partner, you know, like <laughs> you give up your freedom, but you get to try more things at restaurants. <laughs> It's like, well, you know, there's love and family and all of that. But really the point (laughs) of getting married or at least having a significant other is to be able to sample different foods at restaurants. That's Mm -hmm. like the top of of your depth chart. Now, you told a story, speaking of food, on Gutfeld, I believe it was this week, uh, about a food ordering experience that left you scarred. And you decided to use your platform to call out and shame uh, a company in particular. Tell us about this life-changing ordeal, Kat, because it is, and just as a trigger warning to the audience, this is a very harrowing and difficult story and a tale of woe. It was a cold winter's day (laughs) (laughs) in January, dry January, to be specific, okay? It's a Sunday. I wanted to make some chili, all right, because, you know, I'm not drinking. What am I going to do? I'm going to be a cook. I'm going to make some chili. But it was really, really, it was a very cold winter's day. So I didn't want to go to the grocery store to get the ingredients. So, you know, I get the Uber Eats for my ingredients, the Uber Eats grocery delivery. Um, Everything comes that I ordered, but the pepper is like mushy, wilted, disgusting. And the onion, I cut through it. It's slimy to the very middle. It was like squishy onion. Um, I don't know what what I ever did to this person, okay, who, who decided to to try to destroy my life. I took photos. I get on with the customer service. I'm like, this is not edible. Like, you can't eat these things. So they're like, oh, yeah, we'll refund you. So they'll refund me for the vegetables. But I don't know if you know about this. It's called delivery fee, service fee, all these different fees on fees on fees that I paid. I'm paying for a service with those fees of not having to leave the house, right? That's the point. Yes. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of all of this massive upcharges and, you know, these additional fees. They will only refund me for the two items. They will refund me for the pepper and the onion, but I still had to, and by I, I mean Cam, still had to go to the grocery (laughs) store to go get the pepper and the onion. Okay? So... The way that I see it, and, and, I, and I talked to multiple customer service people, and one of them had the gall to tell me that um, I, oh, we will we'll be refunding your fees. It's like, buddy, I can read and I can add, okay? And so I pointed out, no, I just added up the fees. This doesn't even cover one of the fees. And he's like, well, that's the policy. That's the policy. And they, I'm sure they thought I forgot. I talked about it on TV. They comment like, oh, we'd love to send you something. It's like, no, 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 no. You are trash, okay? Because just wow. because I can tweet about it and it'll get like you know I, I'll get a, a reasonable amount of attention enough where they're going to pay attention, I can't be the only one who's gone through this. I, it is fraudulent, in my opinion, because you are paying for a service, which means this is I get Uber to say, Eats, right? Yes. This is you're putting them on blast. And okay. what you're paying for, you're purchasing the services. What you're purchasing with this money is get the, the opportunity, the ability, the luxury of staying home. If you are per- brought inedible items, then you aren't receiving what you're buying, which is that opportunity to stay home. You have to go out and get those items. So it's not about the cost of the pepper and the onion. It's about the fact that couldn't stay home, had to go out in the cold, in the rain. Hmm. Well, this is a traumatizing story, honestly. It's, not, and I'm, it's I'm theft. So, I'm so sorry for your loss and... I do enjoy some of the, like the color commentary 
about this winter's day. This story began like a Mamas and the Papas song. <laughs> like all the leaves are brown, the sky is gray. Cam went for a walk, and he shouldn't have had to for these reasons. Yeah. Now, so they wanted to make it right by offering you something. Did you reject the I did. offer? <gasps> I did reject it because I, I'm th- no because it, it, you change your policy. Because just because I was able to bring attention to it, what about everybody else that's had to deal with this? You right, are they paying, can, they're trying to buy you off. They're not, they can't buy me off. What's yeah. right is right and what's wrong is wrong. And it is wrong. That is stealing, okay? To take someone's money for a service that they are not rendering for you is fraudulent and it's theft. So the service that I was purchasing was the ability to stay home. And by bringing me the most disgusting, like, just vile mush. Rancid. Yeah. Okay. I, I I've never seen produce this bad. I, I didn't I didn't know that an onion could spoil this bad. I've never seen anything like it. Um. And 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 the person who like I don't know if they like knew who I was and hated me. Like it was that bad. I was like I don't know what this is, but this was a choice to select. This produce, like, you'd have to really look for something this disgusting. Yeah, someone sent that out the door, like, yep, put that in the bag and send it over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, an onion that wasn't even firm to the touch, I've never even experienced before. (laughs) And you were already in a bit of a sensitive state because it was dry January. So you were perhaps, you know, on edge to begin with. Well, I mean, I'm not on edge. I'm just, like, bored. I'm like, well, what activities do I, you know, my book was done. I'm like, what do I do? You chose, and can I just say this with love as a friend? I don't associate you um, with cooking That's really at yeah. all. And and if you were to have cooked something, it's like Lucille Bluth from Arrested Development, where it's like she she made the kids cereal in an ashtray once. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure I would eat something that you cooked. I could be wrong. How did the chili turn out after all? Great. There's a few things I'm good at, and chili is one of them. So I was like, it's cold. I want some chili. Let's go. Let's do this. I I mean, again, they stole from me. Their company policy includes um, their company policy is fraud and it's not okay. I mean, again, if you ordered an item and, you know, from any any retailer and you didn't receive the item, would you call that fraudulent? I think so. Yes. I think so. And so, like, what's the next move here? Do you get a megaphone and, like, go to Uber Eats headquarters somewhere and start some predictable chanting or – I never forget. They are on my list of enemies. Okay. I bet you they wish they paid me the $10. I'm going to make them wish for the rest of their lives. You're going to make them wish they were never born. Oh, I'm going – yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, can I'm going I ask through this you... with my apartment building, too. They got We got lukewarm water at night. It doesn't get hot. And oh, no, that's not no, okay. No, every night. And the, the New York City law is that apartments have to reach 120 degrees. The building was like, okay, yeah, no, it's fixed. It's fixed. It's not fixed. I have taken to using a thermometer and videotaping myself. Taking the t- this is why this is my new thing this week. Videotaping myself, uh, uh, taking the temperature of the water with a voiceover commentary that I am now sending these videos to the owner of the property every single night. And now I've yeah. involved uh, the city, you know, three one one. I'm gonna right. I eventually maybe post a, you know, I, I've got I've got a, I, I'm 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 getting an arsenal of evidence. Well, you know that there are some people in perhaps even this audience 
who are now intrigued, saying, "Hang on, she's making videos of herself in the shower." Go on. Yeah. So be I careful. Don't, I, they're not. They're not. I'm, they're not nude videos. They're not lascivious no. content. This no. is. This is again about justice. Yes. No justice, no peace. Yes. That, that is the message from Cat Tim. Now, I do have to ask you, though, because we're talking about food delivery. You and I shared a food delivery moment not long ago. I've got questions. Plus, it reminds me of another story that we've got to get to. Let's do all of that right after this very short break. Cat Tim, it's Fridays with Cat on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's Fridays with Cat. Cat Timf, our guest. All right, as we were saying, I have to remind you that last time we hung out, which was last weekend, yes, we ended up at your place yes. after a night out on the town yes, because it was Keith's birthday. And we had consumed some alcohol, and so sometimes there's a desire to eat something after that. And so, if I recall correctly, McDonald's had been procured and then delivered. Yes. I'm guessing that was not an Uber Eats experiment. That was... Nope. A competitor? DoorDash. DoorDash. Uber Eats doesn't get my business anymore. They only yeah. have my wrath. And those, I will say, those those nugs hit the spot. Yeah, the ice cream spill uh, was oh. tougher to clean the next day. I should have just tackled it the night of. I did not have any of the ice cream. I had a few nugs, and that was it. I was pretty good. One of our other friends, by the way, if I recall correctly, was all excited to keep the party going back at Cat and Cam's, then instantly not only came into your place, didn't lie down on the couch, went to your bed. Under the covers. Your, mar- your With- marital bed. Yes. Under the covers and immediately passed out. And went, so, so I was, like, getting ready to leave after a few nugs and maybe one more drink. And you guys are trying to figure out, like, we need to go to bed, but he's asleep. What do we do? Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't Keith, by the way. Just I'm not throwing him under the bus. I'm sure he would have no problem filling that exact same role. But it was it was a night. In fact, it was a night before we even got back to your place because of the, shall we call it the incident yes. at the bar yes. that we experienced. That was really something. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so what happened very quickly, because I tweeted about it. Yes. At the time, you and I had been chatting intently. Yes. At this bar. It was a gay bar in uh, Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan. And we were right near the bar. We weren't, like, blocking people, no. but we were right up against the bar. We were ordering drinks fairly regularly for ourselves, for our friends and all of that. Mm-hmm. And we were having, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily a heart-to-heart, but we were talking I about a lot is. of things. I think it was. Okay, fine. And we talked about lots of different things for a long period of time. And I guess, and I was wearing... What I normally Mitt would Romney. wear, which is, well, you know, like a sweater over a collared shirt. Like and like I my, said. My Sperry Topsiders. <laughs> We're having our whole conversation. And, you know, I'm enjoying the music to some extent. It was very loud. So we were talking very close because we had to to hear each other. So at one point, there's like this group of guys who comes up and they've got, I guess, their ringleader. And part of the implication was that we were blocking the bar and they needed space to order their drinks. They could have just been like, hey, can we get in? And we would have moved slightly, like no problem. But this guy decides that he's got me pegged. He knows exactly what's going on here. You and I are a straight couple invading their special gay bar. So he's going to shame me. So he goes, this is a gay space for gay people directed right at me. And then starts like, like, grinding up against me with his butt like yeah. to make me feel uncomfortable because you're, you're homophobic <laughs> right that's the that's the expectation here right i guess on his part and it took me a second and then i'm not sure if he ever even heard you but you were like 
He's gay. <laughs> He's married to a man. Right. This ring Which is not me, for In my her. opinion, is pretty gay. Yeah, it's legally so. Right. <laughs> yeah. Legally gay. But this guy just assumed I was straight and we were straight together and we were like invading their magical little space. And there were just like so many wrong conclusions left to there. Yes. And it was kind of annoying. But we took a very cute selfie together. Yes. And that was the occasion for me to dump on this guy and sort of like make fun of him and then also share a good photo of us. So it was like a twofer. So I put it out there. It, it was, was a, it was a big night. OK, it was a big night. And it was crazy because I just don't think like, OK, all Mitt Romney attire aside, <laughs> why? Let's say we are a, like a hetero married couple. Mm-hmm. Why would we have selected that bar to attend? Right. Oh, yeah. Let's just pop <laughs> over to Rise. Yeah. For the evening, honey, what do you think? Where the the men serve the drinks in, you know, like fishnets, chaps with their butts out. Like, why? I mean, it was like me, and then what? Like seven, eight gay men. Yeah, that's right. And then and then your husband arrived. Yes, and then Cam eventually joined, <laughs> and he was not pegged for a straight. <laughs> he was not, but he was. I think more offended by this happening he than was I was. Very upset. He was mad for days. Like yes. he was texting me a few days later, <laughs> still mad about it. I'm like, oh yeah, that happened. But it was it was just a satisfying thing for this guy to make wrong conclusions, and then we once we like briefly told him that he was wrong, he just sort of wilted away. Yeah. But this is this is the ordeal that I went through. You got a bad pepper. Our lives are so hard, Ken. I know. And about, don't forget the onion. The onion, too. I know. That's like, I didn't want to bring it up because it's just, it's too much to mention all in one breath. But look, we have very difficult lives. And thank God we're able to talk about it here together in front of many people on national radio. Yes. Or else we would never get over it. No. It's like therapy. Just yes. better. Yes. Therapy is also See, I, I have a few tool. other topics here, but we're out of time. Like, I've just, oh. I've just blown through all of our time. I know you've got to run. It's yep. almost the weekend. Uh, love you very much. This love was great. That's Cat Tim, our friend. Go get the book in advance. Pre-order now. It's called You Can't Joke About That by Cat Tim. And, of course, tune in tonight. Gutfeld, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. All right, Cat, talk to you soon. Bye. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. Thanks for tuning in. Earlier in the program, Trey Gowdy was our guest, of course, a former prosecutor, host of Sunday Night in America on Fox News. We were talking about the Murdoch trial verdict and sentencing that came down just these last two days. Huge story. Trey, the perfect guy to talk to about it. Here's a part of that conversation. Last time we had you on here, Trey, we were talking about the case and how it was developing in court. Does this feel like justice to you? Yes, and the speed with which the jury rendered its verdict, I mean, Guy, that is that is quick. Um, with that many witnesses, that many exhibits, you know, the judge tells the jury, you cannot even begin to deliberate until the last witness testifies. So, you know, in theory, I mean, we're talking about real people here, not robots, but in theory, you're not even supposed to start thinking in terms of guilt or non-guilt until what? I mean, Tuesday, Wednesday? I mean, whenever you come back from the jury view, because that's evidence. So the speed and Cliff Newman, look, unless you're Rasputin, you only have one life. 
and there was no parole in South Carolina. So his running those sentences consecutive, one was enough, but that was the real shade he threw at him in my judgment, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, what you did is so terrible. One life sentence will take care of you, but I'm going to do them back to back. Um, just so you know. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that it took that amount of time, I saw an interview with one of the jurors who said it was 45 minutes, said they sort of had a little conversation and they talked and they said, ultimately the decision that he was guilty was reached in that room within 45 minutes. There's like a multi-week trial and lots of complications and lots of song and dance from Murdoch and his attorneys and, you know, trying to point the finger elsewhere and all the waterworks and the crying and all of that and the murder uh, of both of these people, you know, rocked the community. And ultimately, the jury was buying none of it from the defense. One thing that you had mentioned last time we spoke on this, you said as a prosecutor, sort of with that that mentality, you would love to have seen a motive, a clearer motive for these murders, because that that was one piece of it that I was wondering about. You know, this is an awful guy who I think probably has a lot of blood on his hands. But why did he murder these two people? I mean, ultimately, you don't have to prove the motive. And obviously, they had lots of other evidence. But I wonder what you thought of that little component, uh, maybe not so little component of this crime. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, Creighton and Zelenka and John Metters did a, obviously the jury thought they did a really good job because it was a speedy verdict. Um, I, I actually thought they spent too much time on motive. I mean, God, you and I could spend the rest of our lives trying to like fashion some explanation where a reasonable person says, okay, yeah, now I get it. I mean, I get robbing a store because I need money and I get like killing someone that made you mad. It's wrong, it's unlawful, but. But you can understand that there really is no explanation for for killing the two people that you are supposed to love the most. So if there's no explanation, then why spend a lot of time? I think you have to hint at it. You have to give the jury some bridge to Something get them. Yeah, I mean, but but I would not, you know, look, the reason that it took 45 minutes and I'm telling you, guy, I would rather have a false exculpatory statement than a thousand confessions. And people that are not prosecutors or not litigators look at me like I've lost my mind. Why would you not want a confession? Because they may not believe the police when when you know they tell the jury this person confessed. But a false exculpatory statement, mm-hmm. I wasn't there at the time, that was his defense. And the only reason he admitted he was lying is because he had no choice. He yep. was on video and audio. So there's this old quote from Nietzsche that I used to quote in the courtroom. I'm not upset that you lied to me. I'm upset that I can't rely on anything else you ever tell me. My full interview with Trey Gowdy, also the entire show, start to finish, on demand as always, is available for free on our podcast. That includes bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the Friday home stretch here from Florida. Producer Christine has some concerns about a plan that her husband has. She thinks that he might be getting a little too old for a certain activity. We'll debate it next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Friday. 
sunny South Florida. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com podcast is free every day. So if it feels like I've been traveling a lot, that is uh, that is correct. <laughs> so we had our trip overseas to Jordan in the Middle East. That was really cool. A vacation, but as I mentioned, did some non-vacation type stuff, fact gathering, learning, going to refugee camps, meeting with government officials, that sort of thing. Then we got back, and the next day I turned around went to New York, had a bunch of TV up in New York, went straight from New York to California, did the show from out there, had a speaking gig out there, then flew to Chicago, then came here to Florida, and the tour continues actually for the next couple of weeks. Not quite as intensive, but still quite a lot. So it has been heavy on the travel, and I have to tell you, that I've had a slight technical malfunction on this trip. My, I have like this uh, shaver, like an electric razor. And I don't know if the shaver itself is kind of on the fritz or if it's the charger that isn't working properly. But it is like a big surprise every day whether or not my shaver is going to be charged. I leave it plugged in now all the time. And then I will disconnect it and hit the button to start shaving, and it will just be completely dead. Or it's fine, and it works properly for, like, a certain amount of time between 30 seconds and two minutes, and then it dies. So the result has been somewhat hilarious. Not really for me. right? It's not fun. But I haven't had time to go. I don't want to go buy a new one. I have other shavers and chargers at home so i don't want to like spend the money on it but i also need to be groomed if you're going to be on tv or speaking publicly like i can't just look like i roll out of bed after a two-day bender or something like that so i've decided to let the facial hair grow just a little bit but to keep it looking you know properly maintained i at least have to shave kind of like where my cheekbones are and then a little bit on my neck And so as of this morning, it was dead. So I sort of re-plugged it back in and tightened all the connections, and it's been sitting there in the bathroom just waiting. So we'll we'll get an update after the show whether or not it works because then it's like a race against the clock. If it does turn on and it's like it comes to life like a total lunatic, I'm there just like shaving as fast as I possibly can the spots that have to get shaved first. It has been not my best overall look, literally. And I will be doing some in-depth investigating when I get home and replacing one or more parts of this. I'm just hoping that I can get like a solid 60 seconds. You know, two minutes would be a real luxury. So we'll find out. Luckily, this is radio. I had just enough to go on Varney this morning. Although they didn't send makeup for me at Varney, so it was not, you know, I was not looking as 100% TV ready as I possibly could be, largely due to the razor issue. So, you know, it's, a, it's just sort of fingers crossed, hanging on, hoping for the best until Sunday, and I go home. Just a little, uh, little glimpse into the glamour of work travel, really nonstop work travel with no downtime to go, you know, take care of this sort of thing. In the meantime, we mentioned right before the break, producer Christine is of the opinion that her husband, Bobby, 
might be aged out of an activity that he is nevertheless going to be engaged in. And I know there's been some vehement disagreements here over this. Christine, what's going on? So Bobby has been invited to a bachelor party next weekend. Um, And it's like a weekend getaway at some sort Mm -hmm. of casino. And listen, I don't, Bobby doesn't tell me what to do, obviously. (laughs) And I don't tell Bobby what to do. So, you know, go have fun. That's not what bothers me. I just feel like at a certain age, you know, he is going to be 41. When do, I mean, don't you feel weird going to a bachelor party? Like, isn't, I don't know. I just feel like he's a little too old. I know if I was invited to a bachelorette party, I don't think I would go. I would feel way too old. How old is Bobby? 40. He'll be 41. Okay. So he's. He's 40. I'm, I'm, I'm just like much. You married a, a, an older woman, I guess, but he sure so did. I'm just, I'm not trying much, to think about wait, 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 this. Not much older. We're le- yeah, less I love than how you just part. immediately endorsed that. You're like, <laughs> he sure did. He sure did. Um, is the wedding upcoming a first marriage? Yes. Okay. I mean, even if it were second, I mean, I think you maybe scale things back a little bit. I wouldn't be judging the fact that there was a bachelor party, but if this is the guy's first go around and this is a close buddy, I, I don't really see what the problem is. I don't think it's an age limited thing. Like maybe going super, super hard is something that you do less and less as you get older, like the nature of the bachelor party. But I see no problem with him going at all. Like it seems completely normal to me. Dan? Yeah, I'm okay with it too. Um, like I'm about to be 35 and I'm not married yet. So my friends will be, you know, we'll be in our mid to late 30s and we'll be going on a bachelor party for myself. So and they've been married for years. So we already did all their stuff like probably four or five years ago. So I'm like the last one. And, you know, we'll be close to 40 doing our thing. But, you know, it won't be like a Miami week where we're just like going crazy for a week. It'll be like something like, I don't know, go to a ball game, play golf and then, you know, get an Airbnb and hang out. That kind of thing. I'm okay with totally. Yeah, that's what Bobby yeah, I, is saying to me. He's like, it's more of like a steak dinner, casino yeah. type thing. But I don't buy it. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. There's that one jerk in the group. You know. There's always one that's like, hey, we got to go get a stripper and this and that. And, like, like again, I trust my husband. But um, I don't know. I just think it's like you're in your 30s still. So, you know, you're there's no argument there. But once you hit 40, don't you think, like, I don't know. Just eh, have a nice really. dinner, call I mean, it a day. I here's the thing. I've been to a number of bachelor party weekends, and actually a few bachelorette party weekends too, like co-ed ones. And it's just never been crazy. Like maybe the closest thing that I can think of of like a real rager was one of my buddies, Dan. Before he got married, we went to Montreal for a weekend, long weekend, and even that was like relatively tame. Like. This is, like, not my thing to be like, whoa, let's go completely crazy or, you know, what have you. My bachelor party weekend was fantastic. We actually had our bachelor parties the exact same weekend. Adams was in Colorado with his friends in the mountains. Mine was in Cape Cod with my friends. And it was both, in both cases, uh, it was co-ed. And we had a great time. We went out to great dinners. We went to the beach. We went to Cape Cod League baseball. Yeah, we, like drank and hung out at the house and went out for cocktails and did a bunch of stuff. It was just like low key and fun, like a little bit maybe more refined than 
what a bachelor party might be if you're getting married at like 22 and all of your friends are that age. I just I think it's more of like what is the agenda as opposed to the fact that it's happening. Well, I have an interesting one too. My sister got married like five years ago, so I, I was invited to the, my brother-in-law's bachelor party. So it's his brothers and all his friends. So it's kind of awkward because they're like, yeah. "Well, is this guy going to be like a spy for Kim, my sister? Right? Whose side is he? Right? On? So like, at first we go to a Marlins game in Miami. It's all nice and happy, and everyone's like not going crazy. And I'm like, "What's going on? Like, why aren't we partying?" And uh, my brother-in-law is like, "Well, everyone's afraid to party in front of you." I was like, no, God, I promise you I'm crazier than all of you. So, like, go for it. Do whatever you want. And it was great the rest of the way. It was fun. Yeah, I mean, you might be crazier than all of them. It's sort of hard to picture. <laughs> I mean, Christine is, you know, Christine is Christine. But I think the person who is known for being the wildest at these types of events, of course, mm-hmm. is Quiet Wyatt. I mean, just totally out of control. Uh, you know, mugshots galore from the various trouble he's gotten into. Uh, we won't ask him about it because, you know, it's we, we don't want to put him on the spot that way. But, you know, Christine, I just think that this is probably not something that you should be concerned about. Um, it's a normal thing. He's going to have a nice time. He's not going to be ridiculous. And it's fine. And look, if one of your girlfriends, someone that you were close with, had never been married, is finally getting married, is all excited about it. She says, hey, we're doing a gal's bachelorette party. Please come. What are you going to say? Like, you know, no, I'm a boomer and I don't do that? Like, no, well, you're going to go. No, I'm not a boomer, but I pr- I probably would do just the dinner part of it. And then really? I, yeah, I d- you're like, oh, there, there's too much alcohol here. No, I can't. I can't be here for this. It's not about you're a lady of temperance all of a sudden. <laughs> It's not about the alcohol. It's about, like, the club aspect of it, don't you think? Like, uh, Weren't you just telling me that you get into, like, dance-offs at every opportunity? Those are weddings. Totally different. Mm. I would dance off at any wedding still. But not at a not at the club. <laughs> Duck club, as we used to say. Um, uh. Another thing is I just want to put it out there so everybody knows. I was not – you said all your friends were at your bachelor party. I was not invited. To this soiree? That's right. You like all do, my do, all my best friends. All right. my best friends Wait, were like there. Looking back now, do you feel bad? No. Yes, no, I feel I, I feel very affirmed. It was a very good decision. Look, you got invited to the wedding. But I wasn't allowed to give a speech. Oh, that is absolutely correct. Absolutely not. I had an aunt, bless her heart, who wanted to give a speech. Nope. Big old veto pen on that one, too. You should have put the aunt and me together. No. So we could have yes, done a speech. Yes, on a, on a bus out of town. <laughs> no, that's like cookie after multiple mama's juices and a microphone at like a nice event. No, no. No, no. I think, I think we played it very well. You threatened. Longtime listeners will remember you kept threatening to show up at the bachelor party. Well, I, like, I, I like also. Like the boom box over your head. <laughs> Demanding to be let in. That well, You were talking openly because you're like, I know where you're going. I, well, I felt, I mean, it was our wedding and I wasn't even invited to the <laughs> bachelor party. So I was very upset. There was a lot of things you didn't include me in. And I think looking back, you didn't realize how close we were going to be. Mm. I think that you, looking back, especially at pictures where I'm not there, you're going to yeah. feel bad. 
No, because like the thing is, we wanted to keep it all classy. That was the number one goal, and we pulled that off. See, have you seen the ads, Christine, for like the new phone cameras where you can just easily delete someone, like you know, Stalinist style from a photo? Like, oh, I don't want them in the photo; they're gone. Mm-hmm. You need the opposite of that. You need a program where you can easily insert yourself into memories that you weren't invited to and put them all over your house about the amazing times you had at my bachelor party and that sort of thing. And like your slumber parties with Wyatt, you know, and just like make up history using fake photographs. Well, now you've ruined your birthday gift. (laughs) Which is next week. And I will be officially in my late thirties at that point. So getting close to no bachelor party zone, apparently, according to like, you know, uh, school mom cookie over here. Uh, we got to leave it. We got to leave it there. Out of time. Here in Florida, absolutely beautiful down here. Uh, Freedom Country. Back in D.C. next week. Looking forward to that. The birthday week, as Christine mentioned. Thank you for listening. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.